Matthew 5, uh, 21 to 32. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fall will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Thanks, Joanne. Well, how easy is it for people to know what you're thinking? I mean, some people are open books, aren't they? Sorry, my iPad is with my sermon on. Keeps. I can't bring you the sermon like that. I'll give you one last go of that. Uh, anyway, uh, some people are open books, aren't they? Um, so Sharon, sometimes, if you just met, Sharon sometimes we've been out shopping or, you know, out and about. And she said, oh, that looks awful. I'm like, Sharon, be quiet. Oh, did I just say that out loud? Um, uh, other times... Um, so myself, my, I'm a bit more difficult to tell what I'm thinking. I remember a colleague of mine back years ago saying, you, are you okay? Are you in a bit of a bad mood? I said, no, no, I'm fine, perfectly happy. He said, well, do you mind letting your face know because you're bringing the rest of us down sort of thing. Now, I have to work pretty hard um, to, uh, you know, to even look slightly ungrumpy. Yes, so I have resting grump face. It's hard to tell what I'm thinking. But does it really matter what we're thinking? You know, does God mind what we're thinking so long as we do good stuff? And most people, I reckon, if you were to stop them in the street and say, uh, are you mostly good or are you mostly bad? Generally, people would say, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but on the whole, on balance, I'm pretty good. I, I don't hurt anyone. Um, I I try not to be rude, I stick by my family, I work hard. But what if everything was like, there's a movie on Amazon called um, Chaos Walking, and they're on this planet where everyone's thoughts can be seen. Imagine if I could see what you're all thinking right now. 
would we be so sure of ourselves that we're mostly good then? Um, in today's passage, Jesus makes it really clear that God is concerned with what we do and with what we say. But he's also concerned with what is on our heart as well, with our thought life. And we follow him in thought and word and deed. Now, I say we're beginning Sermon on the Mount now, but actually you'll remember, of course, that last January we carried on after Christmas in Matthew and we actually got, began the Sermon on the Mount. So a bit of a recap is in order. And here's where we're going with, with the talk today, I think. I've put a slide in there. But the outline was just kind of a recap and then we're going to see that murder is about more than... Do not murder is about more than committing murder. Do not commit adultery is about more than committing adultery and that divorce is about marriage. That's where we're heading. Anyway, a recap. Immediately before today's passage, Jesus just said, as I said in the prayer, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus puts the law from the Old Testament on steroids, as it were, and makes it bigger for our hearts and minds and the way we live our lives as citizens in God's, of God's kingdom. That Matthew 5.20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's, that's a big ask. The Pharisees were, and the teachers of the law were renowned for having hundreds of rules for knowing them off by heart and, and for keeping them all and giving the general population a hard time when they didn't keep them. So how does Jesus expect us to do better than them? Well, the thing is, Jesus is commanding law-keeping that isn't just hard-hearted, reaching the bare minimum because you really have to, but instead a soft-hearted obedience of faith Um, coming from a grateful heart that knows forgiveness. You see, we know from Jesus' other interactions with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that they were really good at putting like a circle of their own rules around the law, a bunch of rules that looked very pious and godly. But actually, they were all about finding the loophole or finding the bare minimum requirement. So that in the end, they were a lot less than the law. And in that way, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law could feel really good about themselves. They were self-righteous. They'd reckon God kind of owed them one because they'd been that good and everybody could see it. But what they'd actually done is played down the demands and the heart of the law and promoted a picky, but in the end permissive, interpretation of it. So that, as we come to what Jesus says today, that's the attitude and practice that Jesus is combating as he gives his own interpretation of how to follow the sixth commandment, do not murder, and the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. As we look at this Sermon on the Mount over the next few weeks, it it can be overwhelming. The standards are so high that Jesus sets. It's tempting to say, it's just sort of being idealistic and kind of dismiss them, not even try to reach them. 
But what Jesus is doing here is helping his disciples, helping us to see that the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are, that um, he started the Sermon on the Mount with. Uh, helping us to see yeah, what they're getting across. So chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus begins this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed, favored by God, in God's good books, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that by themselves, they're completely lost and spiritually bankrupt. They're the ones in God's kingdom. Uh, Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who realize how disastrous and just how evil their sin is, and are heartbroken about it. They're the ones who will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who come to God empty-handed, throwing themselves on his mercy, making no claim to deserve it. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God favors those who long to be more like Jesus, and they'll be helped to be like him. So part of the purpose of the law was always to help us see how far from God we are. And so keep, so that we keep that humble and contrite heart, so that we turn to him in faith to be blessed, to save us. So in face of a self-righteous attitude that seeks to manipulate the letter of the law, Jesus now holds up for us God's, God's heart for these laws and a picture of putting these laws into practice. Okay, so that's our catch-up. That's brought us back up to speed. So first Jesus talks about how do not murder is about more than do not murder. Um, when we lived in the, the UK, uh, I always cycled to work. You're impressed, I can't tell. Uh, not because I was enthusiastic, but because with all the traffic jams, it was the quickest way to get there. But it never ceased to amaze me how the dangers that drivers would put cyclists in just to shave a few seconds off their journey. Now, most of the time, it's just par for the course, water off a duck's back. But one time, this driver went past me, and we even had eye contact, came up to a left turn, they just turned in front of me, cut me up, I had to slam the brakes on, uh, just turned as if I wasn't there. And I was absolutely enraged. I don't know if you've had that sort of road rage kind of thing. And I'm ashamed to say, and this was a long time ago, before I was a pastor, you get a halo when you're a pastor and you never do anything wrong ever again. I'm ashamed to say that I went to give this driver the middle finger. However, it was a very cold day And I'd been gifted by a Finnish exchange student staying with us, a pair of really warm mittens. And so I was left doing these sort of Italian gestures instead of getting across the information I wanted. Now, God was very kind in that instance. Now, sure, that driver had put me in real danger. They they were in the wrong, for sure. But my cool mittens reflected back to me what a silly, angry little man that I was being. 
and just how haughtily I was sat on my high horse. But I'll tell you what didn't come to mind. What didn't come to mind was the command, do not murder. And yet Jesus says, my kind of thought and action that day is covered by that command. Jesus says, my angry mitten is subject to serious judgment, just as a road rage murder would be. So chapter 5, verse 21, we'll pick it up. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Uh, Raka um, is an Aramaic insult. Probably means something like empty-headed. Or it's probably the equivalent of giving someone the middle finger. Fool is that sense of immorally unwise. A scoundrel. I think I was trying to convey both to that driver on that day. So the words and gestures change over the years, but the the sentiment is the same. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm angry about it. Now, God is fair and just. His judgment is proportionate. But Jesus' point is not, well, of course, those behaviors are not as serious as murder. That's not, his, that's not his emphasis here, is it? His point is that anger and the behaviors it brings on are serious enough in and of themselves. They are subject to judgment. They belong in hell, and we're in danger of them taking us there. Again, there is such a thing as righteous anger. God is right to be angry at our sin. It's right for us to be angry that people are sold into slavery still today. But again, Jesus doesn't bring that up here. He wants us to feel the weight of these head, heart, word and deed sins that we so easily write off as understandable, harmless, natural reactions. The Pharisees wanted to reduce this command to just being about do not unlawfully kill another person. But Jesus says it's not just the act of murder that faces judgment. It's also the kind of thinking and speaking and actions that can lead to murder that makes us guilty. But think about why do we get angry in the first place? I think it's because we feel threatened Robert, I've got a list of uh, words here. Power, control, significance, security. I I pinched those off from a course I was on. I think they summarize well, kind of everyone's sort of heart's desire, what they're after in life. Power, control, significance, security. So Jesus is catching us at the point where our hearts are turning to grabbing these things for ourselves instead of turning to him for those things. We've all been angry. We've all called people names, even if only under our breath. We've all made people angry. So what does Jesus say we should do about it? 
Well, he says we should urgently and proactively seek reconciliation. So chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, uh, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Now Jesus is talking to people with a temple. We haven't got a temple, but we can apply this to church, can't we? So there's actually a good chance that some of you here today shouldn't be here because Jesus says the more urgent thing is to be healing a relationship that has descended into anger and name-calling. And it's so urgent that you should go and sort it out right now. And if you're the next person to get up to go to the loo, everyone's going to wonder who you've got to go and sort out your anger issues with. Verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. We can make excuses. Look, it's it's their problem. They're just being sensitive. I've not done anything illegal. No, Jesus says, if you're following him, our being angry, our causing someone else to be angry, is our problem. It's up to us to sort it out before it gets worse. Stop in your tracks. It's urgent. It's more dangerous than you think. Now, there's a bazillion practical ways we can, um, we can apply this command to, to not be angry and not act in anger. Uh, so in our household, we have banned words since um, the boys were little. Uh, so just words we found ourselves saying a lot like shut up, stupid, shift. Um, but then the trouble was, then we had a Every time somebody said one of the words, we'd say, oh, you said a bad word. So then we had to ban saying, oh, you said a bad word. Anyway, all I did was just help stop conversations and moods spiraling downwards, as they so naturally do. Just stops and makes you think. So just day to day, we need to understand who and what pushes our buttons. Remind, remind ourselves that getting angry about it isn't an option. In Jesus' book, and proactively strategize how we're going to stay calm. But really, the best advice was at the beginning of the sermon being poor in spirit, being meek, mourning our sin, knowing that whoever or whatever we're angry about, well, I know that I've angered God. More than that. And yet in Jesus, he comes to us with grace and mercy. He comes to reconcile with us. So murder is about more than, do not murder is about more than murder. Next, Jesus says, do not commit adultery is about more than committing adultery. Jesus says this command covers not only physical acts, but also our thought life. Verse 27. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Excuse me. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this isn't letting women off the hook. We don't want to be nitpicky and find excuses like the Pharisees. And just to point out, God isn't prudish about sex and desire. He, he made them so powerfully pleasurable to, on purpose to bond uh, husbands and wives together. And notice it's not looking that is condemned. It's looking with lustful intent. So it's, it's absolutely okay to find someone attractive, to recognize beauty. In fact, I think it can be really helpful to thank God for that beauty, to bring him into the thought before it goes in another direction. But of course, with what you see, with that look or with that thought, comes temptation to lust. Lust is to crave a person sexually. And we can try and justify ourselves with a bunch of lies. You know, it's only natural. If I repress this desire... It'll make it much worse, and it'll be bad for me. Whereas Jesus says, if you entertain that idea, that desire, you're in danger of hell. We say, well, it's all private, it's just all in my head, nobody's getting hurt. Jesus says, it's the same as a married person having sex with someone who isn't their spouse. Is that really how we see our own lustful looks? But we've all done it. We're tempted every day. What on earth can we do? Well, Jesus says, take radical action. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, of course, it's easy. Well, the easiest thing for us now is to jump to, well, of course, Jesus didn't literally expect us to cut off our body parts. But don't miss that Jesus is warning us in, in the most strong and emphatic terms that he can. Because lust and adultery start somewhere. There's a deep, direct, express route connection between our eyes and our hearts. An expressway between our eyes and our hearts. What we look at is not neutral. And similarly for the hand, there are activities, there are places, people, times of day, stresses. You'll know what it is for you that can press fast forward on our anger, our lust, and our other sins. And Jesus says you can't overestimate the power of external inputs to turn your heart away from him. 
External inputs are powerful. So that means the moment to deal with our temptations for, to anger or to lust it is not in the moment itself. We've got to be proactive in removing the temptation. Our internal problem requires radical external measures. So, for example, someone who has a job that takes them away from home a lot and you know, has them working with members of the opposite sex, if that's a danger for you, you might need to change that job. Or maybe you work with someone and there's definitely an inappropriate chemistry going on. It's dangerous. You might need to change your job. Um, phones, a good idea we try and keep to is only having phones and screens in parts of the house where someone else can see it. So you're not tempted to put the wrong thing on that screen. Identify the time of day when you're, when you're most tempted and plan to do something else there. So be proactive. And I think often we believe the lie that it's just a hopeless battle. We, we can never overcome these temptations. But God is at work in us to be more like Jesus. We will be filled with righteousness. And God's common grace is on hand in much less glamorous ways. Here's a quote from John Piper that I think unpicks some of our excuses around lust. Just at a physical level, you know from experience that the mere, a mere smell, say of human feces, a rancid garbage or your own armpit, can knock the sexual drive right out of your groin. What does that mean? It means those neural paths, those ones we use as an excuse, are not final. They can be trumped. You are not a mere victim. I like that quote. It brings us right back down to earth, doesn't it? The truth is we can't watch whatever we want. We can't go wherever we please. And avoiding temptations like that will mean we're a bit weird culturally to the rest of the world. But it's worth it to avoid giving up on Jesus and going to hell. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Finally, just briefly, Jesus says divorce is about marriage. So verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her, give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this isn't all that Jesus or the New Testament has got to say about divorce. Uh, we haven't got time to go into it properly today. But broadly, God is against divorce, but he allows for it in cases of adultery and in cases of abandonment in its various forms. And over the centuries, Christians have disagreed about where the Bible draws the lines on those things. But here, the context is really important. See, the Pharisees are looking for loopholes, really just to get around marriage. Whereas Jesus is on about the goodness of marriage. That's his point. See, what the Pharisees are on about is in Deuteronomy 24, it talks about divorce 
on the grounds of a man finding something indecent about his wife. Now, surely that was referring to her being sexually unfaithful. But the Pharisees that had expanded it to mean indecent could mean burning the dinner. Or if he just didn't fancy her anymore. So in reality, they were pursuing as many sexual partners as they wanted and legitimizing it by dressing it up in the law. Jesus' point is, marriage in God's eyes, marriage is much more important and much more permanent than that. And he's calling us to treat marriage as seriously as God does. For all that, for, for this that part about divorce, for all that we looked at this morning, and more that we'll look next week, the principle Jesus gives us is, don't diminish God's laws to make it as small as you can. Rather, take the law, take its heart, and run with it. Apply it as broadly as you can, not as narrowly as you can. So let's bring things together to finish. Jesus has expanded the application of God's commands to our inner thought life. Um, But there is still a strong two-way expressway between our hearts and what is external. So that means to help our inner life, we need to be helped by radical, practical action to shape our hearts. But just, again, just looking at Jesus' demands here, looking at how high and far-reaching his ethical standards are. Well, if we walked in here feeling pretty good about ourselves, feeling pretty righteous, we're not going to leave that way, are we? Every one of us will find grounds for being judged and feel guilty just from this short passage, and there's more to come. But that is kind of Jesus' point. Not to weigh us down with guilt, but to turn to him with our guilt. Again, the law was always supposed to show us how far from God we are, how much we need his intervention to have any hope at all. And Jesus raises the ante, shows us even more clearly, so that we can be blessed, so that we can find God's favor by turning to him, poor in spirit, mourning our sin and be meek, depending on him to save and transform us. Our guilt and our humility over our sin isn't our end point. It's our starting point for knowing God's grace and mercy and growing more like Jesus in response. And the other thing I want us to take away from today is, imagine being like this. Imagine keeping the law as Jesus presents it here. Imagine being the person who doesn't let anger to grow, who doesn't want to call people names, let alone say them. Imagine being a person who's quick, always quick to seek reconciliation. Imagine being able to enjoy beauty in a sweet, pure, undefiled way. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Well, dwell on it. Aspire to it. Pray that God will use it to make you 
hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 6 again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Just to help us respond, we're going to sing in a moment. Uh, I'm going to read one of the confessions that we... I'm sorry, I've not put this on the screen. But just listen to this. And if you want to make this your prayer, just say amen at the end. O Lord our God, you know us better than we know ourselves. As we have come before you now, believers and doubters alike, we all share a deep need. For we're all lost without your grace. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our troubled thoughts. Give us true repentance. Forgive us all our wrongs. Transform us by your spirit to live for you each day. To learn to serve each other and through the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord to come at last to heaven. Amen. Some words of assurance from Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's good news.